with us. So Psalm 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the Lord's people and the Lord's house. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit now as we look at this psalm. We pray that we would see the reign of the righteous Son of God and that we would be encouraged and that we would bring glory and honor to you. We ask that you would forgive us now for all of our sins and our transgressions. Cleanse us in that precious blood of the Lord Jesus. As well, God, we pray for any and all who've come here this morning dead in their trespasses and sins, that you would awaken them, that you would cause them to see the, the blessedness of this psalm and the way that it ends, particularly the, the blessing pronounced on those who trust in Christ. We pray that all over the earth today, as your gospel goes forth, many would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. May you cause your word to run swiftly and be glorified. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we in our church are working our way through the gospel of John in our morning services. And along the way, you notice that it seems like it's been carefully scripted. And by that, I mean, it's not a surprising book. We have prophecy in the Old Testament informing us about the coming of the Son of God. In fact, John highlights in the prologue, he came to his own and his own received him not. As well, we see with reference to Herod and Pilate and the various agents involved in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4 and they cite Psalm 2. They look at the opening verses of Psalm 2 as something that was contemporary with their, uh, their lives. In other words, what happened to the Messiah, what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ was not accidental. It wasn't something that just came about. It wasn't some happenstance, but we know that it was orchestrated according to the will and the plan of God Most High. When we look at Psalm 2, as I said, there are many places in the New Testament that we see it alluded to or quoted. Uh, we see as well close connection between Psalms 1 and 2. In fact, many see both Psalms as an introduction to the book as a whole. You'll see the emphasis on the private individual in chapter 1 of Psalms, and then you see the emphasis on the nations or the sort of corporate application in Psalm 2. 
As well, when we look at this particular psalm, we need to appreciate that it's four stanzas of three verses each, and as I said, closely connected to the first psalm. And so I want to look first at the rebellion against God in verses 1 to 3, secondly, the appointment of the Son of God in verses 4 to 6, third, the revelation of the decree of God in verses 7 to 9, and then the psalm ends with the exhortation to kiss the Son of God in verses 10 to 12. But let's look first at these opening verses, this first stanza in verses 1 to 3. And it doesn't take a lot to sort of illustrate what's happening here. All you have to do is sort of look outside. In other words, we see this rage of the nations. We see this hostility of man against God and against his Christ. We see the breach of his law. We see murder. We see abortion. We see euthanasia. We see all manner of sexual perversion. So Psalm 2 verses 1 to 3 isn't really difficult to sort of wrap our minds around in terms of application. It is prevalent. It is obvious. I've often said in the context of our church over the last few years, I think you'll remember that in the United States they wanted to ban Dr. Seuss books. Well, the statists really don't have a problem with Dr. Seuss. They hate God and they hate his Christ. And so they'll do everything they can to get at him. And so as we look at this opening stanza, we notice the identification of the rebels and then the nature of the, uh, of the rebellion. Note the identification, the general population. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And that's a legitimate question. As David asks this psalm, as he says, why do the nations rage? I don't think he's asking it in the sense of, I just can't believe it. I, I don't understand the doctrine of total depravity. I, I don't understand the, the rebellious nature of mankind. David knew his own sin. David knew what it was to be a blessed man whose sin was not imputed to him. David understood all too well the human condition. He traces his depravity in Psalm 51 back to the very womb. My mother conceived me in sin. So the question isn't why, uh, why I, I can't believe it. I think the question is why would they do that in light of the fact that God is sovereign? Why would do they do that in light of the fact that God is over all? Why would they do that in light of the fact that God is able to crush them and destroy them? It's actually an incredulous statement. Why, why do the nations rage? Why, why do the people plot a vain things? Do they, do they understand they're on a fool's errand? They're not going to be successful in this. They're not going to actually dash down Yahweh and his Christ. They're not going to actually prevail and be victorious over the, the divine one. Rather, it is that question as David perceives around him, why do these people do this? It is engaging in absolute folly. And I think the nature of the question is consistent with another prophet and with an apostle. In the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 7, the prophet says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So the incredulity of the question is based on the fact that, that God should be feared. God should be glorified. The man that is created by God shouldn't rise up in rebellion or in opposition against that God. The apostle John on the island of Patmos says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. 
Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing against Yahweh and against his Christ? They're not going to win. This is, in fact, a fool's errand. Now, notice it's not just the general population, but it's the political leadership. And it's at this place that we can't charge David about being too political. Notice that he ends the psalm on, the, uh, on politics as well. Verse 10, now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. It's wrong to engage in partisan politics in the pulpit. It, but it's not wrong to apply the word of God to the political arena. That is simply the law of God, and it speaks to all areas of life. And here David specifically calls upon the kings of the earth and the rulers. He says the kings set themselves. They take a position against God most high. They take a position that is in rebellion and in contrast to the living and true God. The rulers take counsel together, and intriguingly, they differ in a whole host of ways. If you take the very polit various political agencies all throughout the earth, there's a lot of difference. But in this one thing, they're consistent. In this one thing, they find agreement in. In this one target of opposition, they all give hearty consent. It's against Yahweh and against his Christ. And again, in the New Testament, Luke 23, verse 12, Pilate passes the buck to Herod. Pilate doesn't want to have to deal with an innocent man in his jurisdiction that the bloodthirsty Jews are crying out to crucify. So Pilate does what every politician since and before has done. They pass the buck. Oh, he's not technically in my jurisdiction. I'll, I'll send him over to Herod. Well, Herod speaks to him. And at the end of that particular section, it says that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. So again, look at the text. Why the nations raise, the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So this is where they have harmony. This is where they have consent. This is where they have unity. It's in terms of their, 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 their uh, opposition to the living God. Acts 4, that apostolic prayer meeting. The apostles pray, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So as we look at this psalm and we ask the question, why are these nations raging? Why are these people plotting a vain thing? Why do the kings set themselves? Why do the rulers take counsel together? Who is it that is this oppressive, repressive, horrific enemy that they want to rid the earth from, that they want to get out from under? Well, notice it says very clearly against the Lord and against his anointed. And the close connection between Yahweh there and the anointed or the Christ indicates the nature of the Son. It indicates the divine nature of the Son. In other words, the one at the right hand of God Most High has the same nature, has the same essence. In this one uh, divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we see this close connection between the Father and the Son, or between Yahweh and the Christ, we know that there is that unity of essence. And then note the nature of their rebellion. Verse 3, very clear. Let off with this. Look around the world today. What is man's problem with God? He doesn't want to do what God says. What was your problem before you came to Christ? You didn't want to do what God says, right? It's very simple. Well, you know, there's all these philosophical objections and science and this. You hate God. Just admit it. 
I remember one time I preached, this was many, many years ago in a church in California. This fellow came up and he had heard the sermon, he had listened, he was not a professor of faith in Jesus Christ, and he was going on about his, you know, his, the, 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 the contradictions in scripture and this and that and this and that. And I said, what's her name? He said, what? I said, what's her name? What's your girlfriend's name? The one you're in sin with? Because that's your problem ultimately with God. It's not the science that you can't square off. It's not the philosophical issues. It's typically ethical in nature. And that's what's going on here. The nations rage. The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ for this simple reason. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want to do what he tells us. We like maybe four out of the Ten Commandments. The rest, we want to break them. We want to transgress them. We want to lack conformity. We want to do exactly what God has commanded us not to. If you're in this church this morning and you're not a believer, this is your problem. I don't know you. I don't know whether you're a believer or not. But this much I do know, your uh, objections to Christianity typically are ethical in nature. You like your sin. You like your rebellion. You like to break commandments. You like to lack conformity unto the law of God. You like to go where he says not to go, and you like to not go where he tells you to go. You sin by way of omission. You sin by way of commission. You drink iniquity like it's water. So just cut through all the, all the you know, fake objections and just reckon with this reality. I don't want God's rule over me. I don't want God's reign over me. Now, may I encourage you, many in this room had the same attitude. Many in this room, oh, I would say all of us in this room had the same attitude. Guess what? We have been conquered by sovereign grace. We have learned what verse 12 means. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. We know what it is to pass by God's grace from death to life, from darkness into light. We know what it's like to now love that law which we once hated. And that's precisely what we saw in our lives previously. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 119, the psalmist delights in the law of God. It's my meditation all the day. Uh, uh, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. First John chapter 5, the apostle says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Compare the yoke of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you, it's easy, my burden is light. You see, there's always going to be a yoke. It's either a harsh taskmaster vis-a-vis the devil, or it's a gracious taskmaster vis-a-vis the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with these rebel sinners, they don't want God's rule. They don't want God's law. They don't want that which they find to be restrictive. And when it comes to these bonds, when it comes to these fetters, when it comes to these cords, we might think, oh, that is restrictive. Oh, I, I want to do whatever it is I want to do. Think of it the way that a father restrains his child. Is it wrong for the father to tell the child not to run with scissors? Is it wrong for the father to impose his will on the child by telling him not to play with the snake? Is it wrong for the father to restrict the, the, the teenager from fentanyl? Is it wrong from the father to restrict his daughter from, from prostitute? Of course not. And yet, this is the nature of man's rebellion against the living and true God. 
He made us. He takes care of us, and he knows what's right. And yet man in sin rebels, rejects, and, and despises him. So that's the rebellion against God we see here in verses 1 to 3. Now notice the appointment of the Son of God in verses 4 to 6. Notice, they don't want Christ, so what does God give? Christ. We ought to be very thankful that God gives us what we, what we need versus what we want. So look at what we find here. First, in terms of the wrath of God, verses 4 and 5, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And then the response of God is, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. But look at that, that phrase, the laughter of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. Huh, interesting response. The nations rage, the people plot a vain thing. Certainly Yahweh and his Christ have to be a bit shaken by that. Certainly that gets them off their game. Certainly that causes them to have to sort of regroup. Well, we made man and, or, and we wanted him to perform in a certain way and, and he's not following that. God laughs at the rebellion of man. God laughs at the mutiny of man. Remember hearing a sermon by Pastor Albert N. Martin, and he, and he sort of illustrated this. He said, you, you might have an ant problem at home. We, we do right now. There's an ant line uh, at our garage. I, I mean, I think they drink raid, and they're getting more powerful by, by the, you know, the, the time I try to deal with them. But anyways, you, you, you come out to your garage, and you've got these hundred ants, and they, they've risen up in opposition against you. What's your response? Do you say, oh, no, I, I better move? I, I better sell? I, I better change location? I, I, no, you laugh at them because a thousand ants or a hundred ants can't take you down. And so the Lord will hold them in derision. He, he laughs at them. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that speaks concerning the laughter of God. Proverbs 1.26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. So you've got this scene of the mutiny of man. You've got the rebel sinners, a confederacy of godlessness, and they're raising their fists at the Most High and His Christ. And the Most High and His Christ don't come but, uh, uh, with some sort of a reaction like they're shaken or they're, they're, they're wondering how they're going to respond to this. God holds them in derision. He laughs at them. This is why the psalmist says, why did the nations rage and the, the people's plot a vain thing? Why, why do they actually think they can be successful in this confederacy of rebellion? Spurgeon says, mark the quiet dignity of the omnipotent one and the contempt which he pours upon the princes and their raging people. He's not taken the trouble to rise up and do battle with them. He despises them. He knows how absurd, how irrational, how futile are their attempts against him. He therefore laughs at them. In fact, this response underscores the calm dignity of God's throne room. He's not shaken by the rebellion of men. He's not shaken over what's going on in the nations of the earth. He's not up there biting on his fingernails. He's not up there with knees knocking. How am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to deal with these renegade sinners? How am I going to deal with this godless confederate? No, he doesn't do that. He holds them in contempt. He holds them in derision. He laughs at them. He mocks them, not in an ungodly or unrighteous way, but according to to his perfect holy character. And then notice the response. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. This is what your sin evokes from the living and true God. The nations rage and the people's plotting vain things and the person's desire to throw off the cords, to throw off the bonds, to throw off the fetters of God. God doesn't say, well, go ahead and do your own thing. You obviously know better than the infinite eternal God 
You, you just do you. You, you go and, and live the way you want. No, there is a wrathful response. There is a distress involved. The way of the transgressor, Solomon teaches us, is hard. When you young people see the mistakes and the sins that, that your fellows make, never let that depart from your head. Solomon's words are true. The way of the transgressor is hard. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? He who commits sin is what? He's liberated, he's free, he's happy, he's joyful. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And sin is a harsh taskmaster. Sin is a bad thing. And God's response to sin in this context is wrath and distress. This is what renegade rebel sinners deserve, and this is what God brings. And then notice, under this head, the appointment of the son, specifically the appointment of the son in verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Do you love the logic there? They're against Yahweh and against his Christ. So what's the divine response? To send Christ, to install Christ on the holy hill of Zion, to put Christ in that position of absolute authority and power and glory, to set Christ before the men who don't want Christ. And again, if you don't see some parental observation there or some parental parallel or analogy, if your kid always wants sugar, do you just indulge the kid? Yeah, it's morning. Let's have a bowl of sugar. I guess most cereals are bowls of sugar, so you might want to think your approach to that. But with reference to your child's dietary needs, do you go based on what he says? Well, I don't want steak and broccoli. I want sugar. Okay, Sonny, have more sugar. This is the problem with the world, not just sugar. But we indulge children instead of restrain them. We indulge children instead of listening to Solomon. We indulge children to the place where you can't get a tattoo till you're 18. You can't vote till you're 18. You can't drink till you're 21. But if you want to transition at eight, you go right ahead, Junior. That's perfectly acceptable today. No, it's not. It's never been. It's ungodly, and we need to exercise parental restraint. So when the nations rage against Yahweh and against his Christ, what does Yahweh do? He installs Christ. He sends Christ. He, he institutes Christ as that regal head. Now notice what we see here. The laughter and the wrath give way to the reign of Christ. The king is the anointed who is the son of God by nature. And we see he's installed on my holy hill of Zion, which I think in common biblical parlance simply means the place where, uh, from where Christ reigns and rules over all things. When you get to the New Testament, you'll see the church referred to as Zion. Not that Jesus' reign does not encompass the entirety of the earth, but he has a special focus upon the church. And so that's the emphasis in this particular passage. The response to man's rebellion is divine. It is Christ. It is the Lord Jesus. And that brings us thirdly now to the revelation of the decree of God. Notice the introduction of a new speaker. David starts the psalm out by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And then we have Yahweh respond in verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. We're now going to hear from the king, that, that king that has been installed by uh, the, Lord, uh, the Lord God Most High. J.A. Alexander says, as the first stanza, verses 1 to 3, closes with the words of the insurgents, and the second, verses 4 to 6, with the words of the Lord, so the third, verses 7 to 9, contain the language of the king described in the preceding verse, announcing with his own lips the law or constitution of his kingdom. Isn't that 
beautiful that you get that when you read the Psalms or when you read the Old Testament. You get to hear divine dialogue between the persons of the Trinity. This is called technically prosopological exegesis. Prosopon coming from the Greek word, which means person. It simply means reflect upon the persons who are talking on the pages of the scripture, and you'll find some great revelation concerning the Trinity. And so we've got the Father, God, Yahweh, who installs the Son. And now the Son ponies up to the plate, and he's going to tell us what this decree is all about. Spurgeon makes the same observation. We have looked into the counter council chamber of the wicked, into the throne of God, and now we behold the anointed declaring his rights of sovereignty and warning the traitors of their doom. So notice the shift. Verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And now verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. And again, it's not just that tactic or that strategy of reading the scripture in a way that sees the father speaking to the son and the son referring to the decree of the father. But this speaks great comfort to the church, doesn't it? The psalm is pretty sad up to this point, isn't it? I mean, the nations are raging. The people are plotting a vain thing. Kings and rulers and governors and magistrates and, and, and elected officials and prime ministers and presidents. They all have this, this same opposition with reference to Yahweh and his Christ. If the psalm ended right there, we'd say, yeah, I guess that's what life looks like. I guess it's just miserable. I guess it's just horrible. And I guess we just have to accept our lot. But the fact that the Lord Jesus reveals the decree of the Father to us speaks great comfort to the church. We know how things are going to turn out. We know God's purposes and plans, not because we're infinite, not because we're special, not because we're wiser than our fellows, but because we read our Bibles and God speaks to us in the Bible. God speaks to us in his word. We call it revelation. He reveals himself to us. And here specifically, this revelation is an encouragement to the church of Christ to realize that the Confederacy doesn't win. The rebels don't win. The lawless don't win. They don't prevail. They don't make it. They don't go, you know, further than what God has ordained. And so that's the nature of this revelation. So notice the content of the decree. We see the relation of the son to the father. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we should expect this when we get to Psalm 2. We should expect this reality that God the Father will send God the Son to establish a house for God. How would we expect that? 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. Remember, David is sitting in his house. He's been victorious. He's consolidated the, the kingdom. He's got the political uh, 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 capital there at Jerusalem. He's made it the religious capital. So 2 Samuel 7, David is riding high. David's done well. David has, you know, vanquished the enemies of Yahweh. David is now musing in his palace and he's thinking, wow, I, I live in a, in a palace made with cedar and God dwells in a tent. So David wants to make a house for God. That's a good thing, isn't it? But it wasn't his time. It was supposed to be Solomon during that reign of peace. David vanquished the enemies. David cleaned up the, the riffraff so that Solomon would enjoy a peaceful reign to build a house for God. So God promises to David, I will build a house for you. And there he's talking about a dynasty. It's going to be a dynasty, a succession of kings that come from David. And then a son of God will build the house of God. That's 2 Samuel 7, around 14 to 16. 
What does Jesus ask his disciples when they're in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16? He says, who do men say that I, the son of, God, uh, son of man, am? And they say, well, you know, some say Jeremiah the prophet, some say one of the other prophets, some say, you know, Elijah. And then he narrows the scope to them. And he says, but, but who do you say that I am? What does Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. On the heels of that confession of faith, Jesus says, I will build my church. So the Bible reader is programmed early on to look for a son of God who's going to build a house for God. And so when we see that language here in, in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, we expect a son to set things straight on the earth. As well, we see this reference to what theology calls the eternal generation of the Son. Notice, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. The Lord Jesus is not Son by creation. The Lord Jesus is not Son by adoption. The Lord Jesus is Son by nature. This is what we mean when we speak of the eternal generation of the Son. There is an analogy between a father and his son. But there is a non-analogy in the fact that we use the word eternal. See, for any human situation, it's always in time, right? There's always a temporal aspect. I was born on September 16th. I was begotten by my father. I get there's other dynamics involved, but that was the day that, that Jimmy Boy came into being. But when we use that modifier eternal with reference to generation, we can speak of the divine. We see the analogy. The father sends the son. The son is of the father, but the eternal generation indicates, again, his divine nature. He's not one like us. He's not similar in the sense that he is, you know, temporal. He takes on our humanity to be sure, but it's joined to his divinity in the one person. Now, some will cite Acts 13 as the fulfillment of this particular passage. Because Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13 cites Psalm 2-7. And some say, well, eternal generation isn't really in the Bible. The begottenness there just refers to the resurrection, because that's what Paul says in Pisidian Antioch. So the application by Paul of Psalm 2-7 to the resurrection of Christ does not militate against the eternal generation of the Son. It doesn't. In fact, the resurrection underscores the uniqueness of the Son. In other words, the human and divine natures united in the one person. So much so that in Romans 1, 3, and 4, the apostle says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's not declared to be the son at the resurrection. Rather, it demonstrates what's true of him according to his divinity union, uh, uh, in union with the humanity. So Psalm 2-7 underscores the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what is going on in terms of the decree. So before Jesus gets into crushing the nations with a rod of iron, before Jesus gets into how he's going to dash them to pieces, he first tells us something about his relation to the Father. John's gospel is very similar. The other gospel writers, and I'm not picking on Matthew Mark, Luke and, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just come at it a bit differently. John, right out of the gate in John 1, 1 to 18, we call that the prologue, he tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. 
And then he drops down in John 1.14. He says, the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then at the end of the prologue, he says, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. In other words, what's John doing? John's doing theology. He's telling us about the unique relation between the Father and the Son before he gets to what theology calls the economy, how God saves. So John 1, 1 to 18 precedes John 1, 29. When the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, as Christians today, we really like that, don't we? And we should. We should stand in awe that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the Bible gives us more information. We should be concerned about theology. We, could be, we should be concerned about the unique relation between the Father and the Son. So before Jesus talks about crushing heads with a rod of iron, he tells us about that unique relation. So may I encourage you to try to get your minds wrapped around that doctrine of the Trinity, one God, one divine and infinite being who exists in three subsistences or persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a wonderful declaration of that in your confession of faith in chapter 2, paragraph 3, that is biblical in nature, that reflects the teaching of the church at this most important point. And I say all this to simply say this. We live in a day and age where the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is under fire. Not everybody thinks well on this particular teaching. And when you come to it, you might have that, well, I just want to know what God does in terms of saving me from my sins. But once you know who God is, the one who saves you from your sins, then you just stand in awe. Again, the fact that you're saved, stand in awe. But the fact that it's Jesus, the word who saves you, the word who took on our humanity, the word who identifies with us, with all the common, uh, all the essential properties of our humanity and the, the common infirmities and yet without sin. When you appreciate who it is that saves you, I think there's another level, another dimension wherein you stand in awe at the glory of God most high. So Christ tells us something about this relation. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice the pleasure of the father in the son, according to verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Remember, this is Jesus, the son, the only begotten son, telling us about the decree of the father in terms of response to this situation. It starts off with the people's raging, the pl uh, pl uh, plotting vain things, the nation's raging, the, 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 the question of incredulity, why do they do that? God's response, he holds them in derision, he laughs at them, he has this wrath targeted against him, and then he installs his king on his holy hill of Zion. And now the king tells us, I have a unique relation to the father. And as well, the father has pleasure in the son. Look at again, verse 8, ask of me, son to father, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The pleasure of the father in the son is seen in the finished work of the son being rewarded by God the father. Think about it. Philippians chapter 2, the one who was the servant is exalted to the right hand of God most high. Think about the fact that the father confers upon the son this position of regal authority at his right hand. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, the same sort of an emphasis. Christ echoes this in Matthew 28. 
Notice when he gives the commission to the church, he begins first with his omnipotence, and then he ends it with his omnipresence. He says, all the nations in the, under heaven, everything that is has been given unto me. What's the background? It's Psalm 2. It's the rest of the Old Testament. We expect this when we come to that commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples of some of the nations. Make disciples of only Israel. Make disciples of only these few. No, make disciples of, of all the nations. Well, why is that? Because in Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So go make disciples of all those nations, baptize those that are made disciples out of the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. His omnipotence begins, his omnipresence comforts. The church needs to engage in that blessed task. Why? Because the Father already gave it to the Son. It's not, well, I hope that there's all these fruits that will come or, or, or result from, from his ministry. No, we have the promise of that. We have the sure testimony of Holy Scripture, and it was announced in the prophets. Listen to Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. I mentioned doing a, a project with my wife that's completely out of my wheelhouse, okay? I, I am not the flooring guy. I'm not the tiling guy. I'm not the painter guy. I can take orders. I, I can, you know, pick, pick things up and, and move them. And in fact, that was the drawing with reference to this tile. All you have to do is lay it down. Well, I can lay things down like Bob the Builder, man. I, I'm really good at that. But of course, there's always a hitch along the way. Well, you first have to put in a plywood subfloor. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I guess that's going to set me back a little bit. So I don't, you know, flex my muscles around my beloved when it comes to DIY projects. But I can flex my muscles a little bit on the bench press. Come on, honey, watch. Watch me lift this heavy weight. I don't do this. It sounds weird. But, but listen to what the father says to the son. It, it's too small for you just to go after those tribes of Jacob. That's not a demonstration of your glory and power that I want. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. In other words, the scope of the whole is yours, Jesus. Ask of me. I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. This world is Christ's. When we go about to evangelize or preach the gospel or do those things, we don't have to wonder, is God going to bless it? Of course he's going to bless it. That doesn't mean every sinner to whom we speak the gospel is going to necessarily come to Jesus. But in the book of Revelation, you have from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation, a great multitude that no man can number. The church today needs to be revived with a fresh view of that. And I'm not necessarily even attaching it to any view of eschatology. You just need to believe that Christ asks of the Father for the nations of the earth and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. And then when he comes to commission his church, that's precisely where he sends them. Go and make disciples of all the nations. We see the Father glorified in the Son. The reward of the Father to the Son, the nations, and the end of the earth. And this reflects previous revelation. What's 
What's going on when God says to Abraham in Genesis 13? I want you to look north. I want you to look south. I want you to look east. I want you to look west. That may not have corresponded. That wasn't the point. I want you to look at that. What is God saying? It's the confines of Israel. It's this piece of geography that you're going to inherit. That's not how Paul interprets it. And remember, it's not predicated on Abraham. It's the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. So how does Paul interpret the promise given to Abraham relative to looking north, south, east, and west? Well, he tells us, Romans 4.13. He says specifically, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, we we emphasize on the fact that it was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Yeah, we should emphasize that. That's Paul's larger point in Romans 4. It's the preaching of justification by faith alone. But did you hear what he says? For the promise that he would be the heir of the, 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 the world, brethren, not just the tribes of Jacob, but a light unto the Gentiles. Well, again, where does this all go back to? previous promise in terms of the uh, at least the psalm 2 situation to abraham isaac and jacob but we see that promise carried all throughout the old testament we see it come to fruition and realization in our lord jesus christ and we as the church need to hear those things and we as the church need to go and in our going disciple the people that god calls us to and then after that we see this judgment of christ over the nation verse 9 gives us theology, highlights the reward for his mediatorial work, and then he indicates the nature of his judgment. Remember, it's a context of nations raging and peoples plotting a vain thing. It's in the context of kings and rulers setting themselves against Yahweh and against his Christ. That's a bit of an unresolved tension at this point. We need to figure out what happens. What's what's the resolution? How does Jesus deal? What's the the wrath of God revealed in this particular situation? Well, look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a a, a potter's vessel. This is the means by which the ungodly shall perish. Look at chapter 1, or Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. How does the ungodly perish? They get their heads smashed by Jesus Christ and his rod of iron. They are cast off because they are confederate. They are cast off because they are rebels. They are cast off because they are not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are cast off because they're not cleansed in his precious blood. If you're not cleansed and clothed, you are cast off. You receive the wrath and fury and judgment of God Most High. You see the justice of the king over the nations. This is cited often in Revelation 227, 12, 5, and 1915. Why? Because Revelation isn't about doom and distress and heartache and woes and pain. Do you know what Revelation is about? The victory of Jesus Christ. So many people read Revelation and they get so upset and so sad and so fearful and I can't can't believe the beast. The beast in Revelation 13 is followed up quickly by the lamb and his fair army in Revelation 14. You've got to appreciate the flow of the book of Revelation. It's not to bring you sorrow and misery. It is to bring you encouragement and joy at the the fact that Christ is at the right hand of the Father where he's bringing the nations into subjection, either through conversion or rather through punishment. And that's the judgment we see there. 
Before we leave this head, if you ever read Dale Ralph Davis, he has a good summary statement here. He says, the appointed king, verse 7, with worldwide sway, verse 8, to be established in overwhelming force, verse 9. That is the decree that is controlling history. And may I suggest, whatever your eschatology may or may not be, Whatever your view of Christ may or, well, you should have a great view of Christ. Whatever your thoughts may be about this present evil age, and it is an evil age. Again, the celebration of child murder, now the celebration of child mutilation. Did you ever think we'd be here? Even, even a few years ago, did you ever think that they would fly the pride flag in a prominent place over and above the U.S. flag at the, the White House? I mean, it's happening quick, isn't it? You look around, and the next thing you know is that they, they've made more ground. They, they've, they've gotten more, you know, they've, they've, they've furthered the ball in terms of Satan and his, and his designs. Never forget that statement. And again, I think it's a good summary statement. The appointed king with worldwide sway to be established in overwhelming force, that is the decree that is controlling history. Praise God, we're not left to the, to the fates or the, the chance or some you know, thought that, that this may not turn out in a victorious way. We've got the promise of God. Now, notice how the, the, the psalm ends, the exhortation to kiss the Son of God in verses 10 to 12. The, the audience is addressed. Notice in verse 10, now, therefore, be wise, O kings. See, see David, king of Israel, knows that, that his God is true, right? When you, when you look at all those ancient kingdoms, they all had their gods. They, they all had their competitors. They all had their rivals. They, they all had, you know, their temples. Remember that scene in, in 1 Samuel 4 and 5 when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant? Where do you think the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant? They took it to the Temple of Dagon. That wasn't just, hey, it's a good garage. We can store the Ark there. It showed victory. It showed defeat over Yahweh. It showed that Dagon was preeminent in that exchange. So when they go to visit Dagon the next day and he's fallen over and they have to prop him back up, and then they go back in there the next day and he's fallen over and bits of him have you know, come off and they have to super glue him back together, I, I got to think the author there's laughing. He's you know, slapping his knee at how insane this situation is. There's that bit somewhere about Isaiah 45-ish, 6-ish, where the prophet's mocking the Babylonians. When their gods fall off the carts, they have to pick their gods back up and put them on the carts. Brethren, that's funny, okay? The, the, the Israelites had a sense of humor. The prophets had a sense of humor. Jesus had a sense of humor. You, you strain out gnats and you swallow camels? You know, we're too dignified to laugh, but our kids would have. They, they would have thought that was a knee slapper. That, that's what, you, you can see them right there. They're straining out gnats because they don't want a gnat in their wine, but they're going to swallow a camel. Or, or, you know, you try to bring a camel into the eye of a needle. That, that's just, it's insane. Or consider Elijah on, on, on Carmel. Where, where's your God? Is he, is he meditating? Is he on vacation? Perhaps he's relieving himself in the bathroom. Again, brethren, when you come to passages like these, you have to see that the prophets are showing the folly and the futility of idolatry. Psalm 115, the idols, they have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have noses, but they don't sniff. They have all these things, but, but our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. 
So you see, the kings of the earth are addressed by David, and he says specifically to them, now therefore be wise, O kings. What's the implication? To reject Yahweh and his Christ is not wisdom. To reject Yahweh and his Christ is the height of folly. You'll hear people that I'm just too smart to believe the Bible. Science has shown that it's wrong. Science and this and that. Boy, brethren, if we haven't lost our confidence in science after three long years of COVID, I don't know what it's going to take. <laughs> I really don't. Again, I don't want to get political here. I'm not wearing my MAGA hat or anything like that. But the bottom line is science at best is a hypothesis. Science at best is not dogma. Science can tell you what is, but science can't tell you what must be. And so this idea that science has proven that the Bible is fake, again, show me, please, Mr. Scientist. You guys can't figure out whether we should stand six feet away or not. And you're going to tell me that the Bible, the word of God, is somehow, you know, suspect in your scientific opinion? It is the height of folly to reject the revelation of God most high. This is why David says, now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Now, notice the exhortation. It's twofold. First, the service of God. Secondly, the submission to the Son. Now, they obviously are inextricably connected, but I think it's helpful to look at them individually. Notice verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What does that mean? It's a call to repentance. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Stop doing that and serve the Lord. Stop engaging in this mutiny and serve the Lord. That, that's repentance, right? It's mingled with faith that the text ends, the, the psalm ends on justification by faith alone. But true saving faith always has with it repentance. The older boys used to say they're two sides of the same coin. You don't have faith without repentance. You don't have repentance without faith. So you can't separate these two things. And so when David calls upon the kings and he calls upon these judges to be wise, to be instructed, what does he say? Repent. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is foolish. What you're doing is going to end with a rod of iron smashing into your head. Stop doing that and serve the Lord with fear. And then notice it says, and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Have you ever given thought to that? Well, really? I remember growing up and one of the things that we used to watch on the television was the Little House on the Prairie. Got to say, I never read the books. I saw the show, though, and I'd hear reference to God-fearing Christians. As a young papist and an irreligious boy, I used to wonder, what is good about fearing God? That just doesn't sound fun, does it? God-fearing Christians, that's, that's the epitome of your religion, is to fear? Well, then, of course, as a Christian and then reflection upon Scripture, I've understood fear in its biblical context and the frame of reference and reverential awe and what Murray called the soul of godliness is to the, the, the fear of God. So I, I get it. But notice that it's mixed with joy. There's that scene in Matthew's gospel when they discover the empty tomb. I think it's the women. And they, they, they run from there fearful with exceeding joy. Those things can be harmonized in the believer's heart because the finite comes to the infinite. And there's always things we don't know about the infinite. And as we come to that God, 
There is that fear. There is that reverence. There is that adoration, that, that honor that is consistent with his being, with his dignity. This is God's complaint in the prophet Malachi. You, you honor your fathers. If I'm a father, where's my honor? They're bringing, you know, maimed and lamed sacrifices to the, to the house of God. He says, pay that to your governor and see if he'll be impressed. Try that sometime, Canadian Christian. Pay your, your, your due to Can, uh, Revenue Canada in a way that, that shorts them, in a way that gyps them, in a way that, that, that takes from them, and, and see how that works out for you. I've often said, you can, you know, the, the, that maxim, uh, death and taxes, those are the two things, non-negotiable, death and taxes. You, you might conceivably not pay taxes, but you're probably going to go to prison. I mean, the governments, you know, they don't, they don't take that, you know, lightly. Remember, that was one of the things in Luke's gospel that, that they said about Jesus. He, he forbids paying of tax. Oh, well, you know, stop the presses. We, we better get involved now. Well, we can't have a, you know, a tax evader calling up people to, to join his movement. We have to crush this. But with reference to the prophet Malachi, God says, try pa paying those taxes to your governor. And yet you bring me the lame? You, you bring me the maim? You bring me the blind? You, you bring me the one that, 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 that sort of hobbles and you can't fetch a good price for in the market? See, God's point is simple. When you come before him, you, you esteem him. You understand who he is. You, you acknowledge his holiness and his, his majesty and his glory. And, and, and mixed with that is this, is this joy. There's that passage in Acts 9. It's describing the churches. I, I think it's around the Judea area. And it says, and they went and they, uh, they continued in the, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Again, we might think, you know, from an outsider looking in, how can fear and comfort coexist in the heart of the believer? Very simply, our God is glorious. He's majestic. He's holy. He is magnificent. And he has saved us by his grace through the blood of his son. So that fills our hearts with great joy as we come before him with great fear. Spurgeon put it this way. There must ever be a holy fear mixed with the Christian's joy. This is a sacred compound yielding a sweet smell. And we must see to it that we burn no other upon the altar. Fear without joy is torment. And joy without holy fear would be presumption. So these two things are consistent. Now the application of our sermon this morning. I've got some things prepared, but I don't want to wear out my welcome. We'll just look at verse 12 as sort of the application of the whole. And notice, it is this call to submit to the Son. And again, I'm going to lean on Spurgeon. His three heads on verse 12 are absolutely great. It's a command, an argument, and a benediction. The command is simple, kiss the Son. Now, kids, if you think that means you've got to fly in a spaceship and head up to heaven and find Lord Jesus and put a kiss on his face, you're wrong. I know we can't ever tell our little ones they're wrong. They're wrong. You're, you're, you're wrong. Kiss in Old Testament language means to do homage, to do reverence, to bow, to submit. So he's called upon the sinners to repent, and now he's calling upon the sinners to do that reflex with repentance, which is faith. Kiss the son. That's the simple command. If you're a sinner here this morning and you are in your sins, I don't have a long list of things you need to do Go out and stop smoking crack. Go out and stop visiting prostitutes. Go out and stop, you know, disobeying your parents. Go out and just be a better version. I don't have a list like that. It's simple. Kiss the sun. 
In the New Testament, we see it this way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's the same emphasis, the same meaning. So that's the command to these wayward sinners. That's the command to these rebellious folk. Notice he's not moralizing. He's not just uh, you know, engaged in do-goodery. Stop your machinations. Stop ruling your kingdoms in such horrible ways. Stop your oppression. Stop all this. No, kiss the sun. Believe the gospel. Look unto the Lord Jesus and live. Now notice here's where the argument comes. That's the next bit. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. See, those concepts are running throughout this particular psalm. God holds them in derision. He laughs at them and he distresses them with his deep displeasure. He holds them in contempt and there is judgment. And this is a great, as great an argument as any other. I remember coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and thinking at times, why? I was afraid to go to hell. It's not the noblest thing, is it? That's not virtuous, is it? Well, praise God, I'm not going to go to heaven based on my nobles or my virtues, but on faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, I don't know if it was Spurgeon, oh, it's a brockle in his Christian's reasonable service. There are a lot of ways people come to Christ. Some hear of the love of Christ, and they get wooed by that love. Others hear of the judgment of God, and they flee that, that wrath. They come to the Lord Jesus. I guess the point is, however you get there, get there. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Imagine the full weight, the power, the majesty of that wrath on the day it's unleashed. There's that scene in Revelation chapter 6, which I actually think is a historical judgment. I don't think it's the last day. But whatever your position is, we see all of the, the, the men of the earth call upon the, the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from what? Hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So the Lamb is going to wield this iron rod and smash those who do not kiss the sun. And then the psalm ends on a benediction. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The emphasis on justification by faith alone, underscored by the blessedness of justification by faith alone. You ask anybody that you know that is a believer in Jesus Christ, and they will tell you, this is everything. This is everything. Knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior trumps all other things in this world. Paul the Apostle says, whatever was profit to me, whatever was gain to me, I count as rubbish. I count as dung. I count it as stuff only fit to throw to the dogs to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that righteousness, which is from God through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm that we see oftentimes referred to throughout scripture. And we praise you for the king that you've set on your holy hill of Zion. We thank you that he's at the right hand of the father, that he rules and reigns over all things for the good of the church. And we look forward to his return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we pray that all of us here this morning, those whom we love would be cleansed in his precious blood and clothed in that righteousness by which we are accepted in the beloved. We ask that you would bless this church, bless the ministry of this church and be glorified here. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord.